1: so many great episodes. It just seems like yesterday we were recording episode number one. And to look at where we are a year plus later and the amazing people that God's brought our way, we have just been blessed. And I hope you've grown because I know I sure have just by my time with them. Well, today is no exception. Today we get to sit down with Pastor Terry Smith. He's the pastor of the Life Christian Church in West Orange, New Jersey. And he has come out with a new book, The Hospitable Leader. What I love about that is Pastor Terry has served his congregation over 27 years. He is a student of leadership. He is a guy who not only gets it, but he loves to help others get it. And I love Pastor Terry because of the passion he has to see people be their best. He's been married over 37 years He has authored now, this is his second book. He's watched his church grow from 54 members to a family of over 3,000. He's worked with leaders in the New York City Leadership Center. And, man, he's just got a heart for it. And his new book that's coming out, it's going to be hitting the shelves here soon, The Hospitable Leader, looks at leadership from a different vantage point than I have ever thought about it. And it really takes it through the lens and the eyes of Christ and how he did his ministry and how other successful leaders have done their time serving others. And I think you are going to really be stretched and you are really going to grow today through our time with Terry Smith. So I want you to pull up a chair and listen in to my time with Terry Smith. Well, Terry, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Lynch with a Leader. It is an honor to have you.
0: It is my honor, Mike. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Well, I am so thankful we have gotten connected. And it was neat to know, man, we got a lot in common. We've both been in our churches for a while. We both have a heart for leadership. Uh, We both have a heart for seeing people be their best. Tell me a little of the journey before we dive into your new book. Tell me a little of the journey that's gotten you to today.
0: Well, um, I've been leading here, serving here at the Life Christian Church in West Orange, New Jersey, just outside of the New York City metropolitan area for 27 years. Wow. And uh, prior to that, I traveled and spoke around the country. I had a crusade ministry to young people. And uh, prior to that, I was just a teenager and kid growing up in Indianapolis, Indiana.
1: When you were that kid growing up, did you ever dream you'd be doing what you're doing now?
0: Actually, yes, I did. Um, I dreamed that I would have had a lot more success than I've had. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I actually had a sense of calling around vocational ministry in my mid-teenage years. Wow. And uh, I've been following that dream pretty passionately now for a long time. I'm a, I'm a 55-year-old guy, so uh, I had a sense of calling the ministry when I was 15, 16 years old.
1: That's awesome. What I love about what you've done up there and just reading up on you was you're here in a major metro area, pastoring a large church and, and been there for a long time, but yet you're super involved in your community. You're involved in the Rotary, you're involved in other aspects. And I, I would love to hear a little bit more about your New York City Leadership Center. Tell me a little bit about the, the, the birth of that and why that was a passion for you.
0: Well, uh, that, that's an interesting story that begins with a small group of pastors, uh, probably 25 years ago, wow. who started meeting together to pray over New York City and, and this region. And uh, I got invited into that group early on, and that became Concerts of Prayer Greater New York. And that movement of prayer grew in its influence to such an extent that at some point, um, it became a center of influence that a lot of people from around the country wanted to access in order to do things in New York City. Well, a couple of us from the Board of Concerts of Prayer Greater New York, Founded the New York City Leadership Center. Mm. And uh, the desire was to equip leaders, both um, people in the business world and church leaders, to be more successful in their leadership in order to continue to influence the New York City metropolitan area. So that's how the New York City Leadership Center started. And um, it's been a great journey. uh, And I've been able to be involved in that for a number of years.
1: That is so cool. That is so cool. And what I love about that is you are letting people use the leadership in the places they've been put and equipping them to be the best they can be. And I love, I love that concept. That's really cool.
0: Yeah. Um, the, the idea has been one, one of the, one of the key parts of the New York city leadership center has been what's been called the fellows program, hmm. And um, the fellows program goes from fall to spring. People pay or scholarship at a relatively large amount to spend an afternoon once a month hearing some top leaders from around the country from a variety of disciplines teach. And over that course of time, they develop a mission and strategic plan for whatever it is they're leading, whether it be business, whether it be a nonprofit, whether it be a church. It has a practical outcome. That's one of the things I've been most proud of about the New York City Leadership Center, which is now, by the way, called movement.org. They've actually changed the name. And um, we've been able to see a lot of leaders not just learn concepts, but actually develop plans to take what they've learned mm. and make application in their, in their lives in real ways.
1: That is so good. That is so good. And I guess a lot of this that you've learned through pastoring, through leading, through traveling, through organizations like this, and in the community have probably all wrapped up, just getting done reading your book, have all wrapped up into this new book that you've got, and this new passion that God's put on your heart. Talk to me a little bit about the hospitable leader. And when you think of this person that emulates these five concepts. Talk to me a little bit about where all this has come from.
0: Well, um, you're exactly right. The, the book, The Hospitable Leader, comes out of a lifetime of both learning and experience. Mm-hmm. I have a, a formal academic background in leadership. I have a master's in organizational leadership. But as you and most of your listeners know, that, that only does so much for someone. Mm-hmm. It's really the school of hard knocks, lots of experiences. Uh, that, that have shaped my thinking, lots of doing things wrong and rethinking them and trying to figure out how to do them right. And then just being a student of leadership and reading lots of great people, listening to lots of great people, spending time with lots of great leaders. All of that together has kind of come to shape this leadership philosophy that, that I call hospitable leadership.
1: I've never seen anything like it. And, I, and that's why I'm really interested to dive into this and I'm, I, I love leadership stuff and read a lot of leadership books, but your concept and the way that you laid it out is very different than anything I've ever seen. I think it's spot on to a Christ-like leader, to be honest with you, and, and somebody that's emulating those, those passions and fruits of a walk with Jesus. Give everybody a little bit of the flyover of what a hospitable leader looks like, and then we'll come in and unpack that a little bit.
0: Well, thanks for saying that, Mike, it really means a lot. I know that you're quite a leader and quite a student of leadership, and man, do you ever have some great guests. So thank you. Thank you. Um, So first of all, it's important to note that the hospitable leader is not me. (laughs) The the hospitable leader, uh, the hospitable leader is Jesus. And I really try to learn from the way that Jesus led uh, in a way that was married to hospitality, how to practice what, what I call and others call moral leadership. So the definition of a hospitable leader is somebody who creates environments of welcome where moral leadership can more effectively influence an ever-expanding diversity of people. Mm. Now that's, that's a little bit of a mouthful, but every word in there means something important, at least to me. And that is that we're, we're creating space where we can lead people in a moral way to moral ends and where we can expand the diversity of people who are willing to be led by us. Mm. So that's, that's kind of the, the big idea of the hospitable leader. You're creating environments of welcome. You're ensuring that there is a climate, attitudinally, spiritually, Physically, communicatively, where people actually want to be led and they want to be led to good things in the right way.
1: You know, and, I, and that's a great concept. I know Blackaby in his book on spiritual leadership, Henry, I don't know if you've read that book, phenomenal book. And they I said, but,
0: I, but I've heard you talk about it. Oh,
1: Mike. man, it's so good. But they said, leadership is moving people onto your agenda. Spiritual leadership is moving people onto God's agenda. So we're trying to get people not to serve me best, which fits in leadership to a degree, but I'm trying to get people to find what God has for them the most. And as you lead in a Christ-like fashion, it does change how you lead. Talk to me real quick. As you think back about the leadership of Jesus, how did he lead with hospitality? How did you see him formulating this concept that now you're going, man, I want to unpack this a little bit?
0: Well, so I would say three things about that. First of all, um, I think that hospitable leadership, as as portrayed by Jesus, is a mentality. It's a Mm -hmm. philosophy. It's a worldview. It's a way of seeing leadership. One of the things that Jesus said is that he, he said the kingdom of God is like a feast that a father threw for his son. It's like a wedding feast that a father threw for his son. I got to thinking, what would it be like to be able to describe my leadership domain, my sphere of influence as a feast that Mm -hmm. I've thrown for my followers? What would that look like? What would it look like for a corporation to do that for their stakeholders, for a coach to do that for the players on his or her team? What would it be like for for the staff in a local church to feel like the pastor in his leadership efforts, was throwing a feast for them. Mm. So first of all, I think this is a, this is a, a mindset. It's a, it's a way of viewing leadership. Secondly, Jesus was very clear in saying of himself that he came eating and drinking. Or one translation says that he came enjoying life. I mean, all of us know that much of the context for the, the story of Jesus and his leadership happened in hospitable settings. Where he was either the guest or the host, he seemed to be willing to go to a dinner party with anybody anywhere anytime. and a lot of the most important things he said happened at a meal so so there's that and and then third jesus um he he was always inviting people home. There was a sense that people had when they were with him that that they were at home, you know. That was part of the final thing he said at the Last Supper: "Is you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go home, prepare a place for you, and I'm gonna make my home with you." So I like this concept of of Jesus always bringing people home, home to the Father, and I think that's a hospitable concept.
1: It seems so opposite than maybe the Jesus everybody's seen portrayed, you know, where where crowds are flocking to him, they're listening, they're watching, but you're presenting a very different picture for a leader of the way that Jesus led. Do you think there was a lot of intentionality behind what he was doing then that he wanted us to emulate?
0: I would like to think so. I mean, it's yeah. pretty interesting. Tim, Tim Chester actually said something uh, I thought pretty insightful, if I can remember. He said... There there are only three times in the New Testament Jesus described basically why he came. Mm. He came to seek and save the lost. He came, I can't remember what the other one is, but then the other one is how he came, which is that he came eating and drinking. Mm. I kind of I, I do think that this this feasting mentality, this constant eating uh with Uh, both his team and with people totally other than him. I do think that there was intentionality around that. Yes, I absolutely do. I, I think that that was a big part of his leadership strategy. Yeah.
1: You made a statement in the book, leaders, especially in today's world must seek permission from followers in order to lead them. Why is that true now more than ever?
0: Well, I just think that there's, been a huge societal shift for whatever reason. I'm not sure that I could explain that, where you can no longer tell people what to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, when, 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 when I was a kid, my pastor, who was a, a, a great man, I believe, was pretty much a dictatorial or perhaps I should say an authoritarian kind of leader. <laughs> Everyone did what they were supposed to do because he said to. Yeah. Well, good luck finding a, a successful pastoral model today where that's true. I mean, even uh, uh, y- you and I both enjoy athletics. And um, in, in the athletic world, more and more you see uh, the need for a coach to be a so-called player's coach. I mean, it's 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 just somehow or another, the leader has to find a way to get people to give them the permission to lead them. Um, Francis Hesselbein, I don't know if you're familiar with mm. Frances. Frances was the CEO of the Girl Scouts for many, many years. She's a, she uh, was a, a protege of Peter Drucker. In fact, she took over the Drucker Institute when Drucker Passed away, and and Francis says she spoke at our church and said that she has a tattoo on her shoulder. Now Frances is now I think more than a hundred years old, and um, I knew that she wasn't being serious about the tattoo, but she was serious about what this fake tattoo said. Leaders of the past tell leaders of the future ask, Ooh. and for whatever reason, that is exactly true. I can't tell anybody really when it's all said and done even the people who I am paying to work for me. Let's put it like this, I don't tell them what to do very often. Mm. If I can't get them to give me permission, if I can't if I can't speak to their want to, if I can't move their heart, if they aren't inspired, if they don't see the vision, the transcendent purpose in what they're doing, especially all the millennials I have on my team, it's, it's hard to lead them effectively.
1: Yeah, it really is. You know, one of the levels you talk about in here is a warm heart level. Can, can a leader learn this or is it just who they are or who they aren't? Is that something they can learn?
0: I absolutely believe that someone can learn this. So, so the idea is I I, I talk about uh, this. So, so the hospitable leader is organized into five welcomes and the first welcome is called home. Mm. And I, I talk about how that a hospitable leader has to create an environment that feels like home. And I, I discuss, and I won't go into it now, how that home is where the heart is warm and that that good leaders learn how to warm people's hearts. Um, it's like, it's like those two guys on the road to Emmaus post resurrection and Jesus showed up, started walking with them and they didn't realize who he was until they were sitting at dinner. And then all of a sudden he's revealed to them. And after he disappears again, they said, Hey, uh, while he was talking to us, we felt our hearts burn within us. Yeah, yeah. We should have known who he was. In other words, we've, we've, we have always felt our hearts warm when we were around Jesus. Mm. This was one of the characteristics of his leadership is he knew how to warm people's hearts. He knew how to help people feel at home. And so I, I talk a, a good bit about how the good leaders learn to warm people's hearts. And when we warm people's hearts, it's easier to move them to do mm. things. Um, and so, uh, I, I have the privilege of being surrounded here by a lot of people who are very successful in their leadership context, but, um, frequently I'll watch someone formally trained in leadership, lead a meeting where it's just the facts. It's just getting to the details and people's hearts aren't engaged. And I watch the lack of effectiveness of those meetings, not just in the, in the moment where it's boring but in the long term if you don't if you don't grab people's hearts it's hard to get good things back from them
1: how do, i'm sorry go ahead i'm sorry no 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 please to. you go ahead no I was just going to say so uh, we would say that's a soft skill that right. man that's a soft skill for somebody Where does somebody get that I totally agree with you how do you how do you learn that art of having a warm heart. Have you seen anything through the years that's helped people?
0: Well, I'll just, I'll use some of my, my own experience. Let's say, for instance, uh, this Thursday night, I have a board meeting. And um, typically, before our board and elder meetings, we have a meal together. It's part of how we practice hospitable leadership here. I mean, there's nothing that warms the heart like a good meal and nice fellowship. And it's just easier to have a meeting about numbers and strategies and so on after you've done that. Well, this, this Thursday night, because of scheduling things, we're not having the, the meal that we normally have. And I, I actually have been thinking as a discipline, what am I going to do to get their hearts warm before we plunge into all the tedium that's necessary for the meeting? Now, I haven't figured that out yet for Thursday night, Frank. Yep. But somehow or another, it'll, it'll probably be some combination of vision casting, storytelling, mm. asking them questions about their lives, what's happening, getting them to tell me something about their successes or something they're struggling with. Uh, it's, it's really not rocket science as much as it's being aware that you want to warm people's hearts before you're trying to move them to take some kind of action or have a discussion where you need them to be engaged in serious ways. Mm.
1: You made a comment in the book and you said if churches and people would become more hospitable with each other, it would help our society in huge ways. Why do you think that? Why do you think
0: that it is so needed in churches and communities right now? Man, our society is so polarized. I mean, Everybody, everywhere, it feels like is yelling at each other. I mean, we have fault lines of division in, in, in about every way you can imagine. Politics and race and uh, gender conflict and, and religion. Um, so one of the things that's kind of important for, for people to know about me and about us, the Life Christian Church here in New Jersey, is that we're really known for our diversity. We have people from uh, about every imaginable demographic. We do not have a dominant racial group. Wow. Um, We have uh, PhDs and GEDs. We have people from every imaginable denominational background, unchurched people, Jewish people uh, who've come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, Republicans, Democrats, we, last we looked we had people from i believe 136 distinct geographical communities wow. attending our church well this is to say that that um as welcome to and the hospitable leader is called strangers we've had mm. to learn to love people who aren't like us and this is a key part of the whole hospitable leadership concept hebrews chapter 13:2 says well, Hebrews 13.1 says that we have to keep on loving each other's brothers and sisters. Well, we know that's challenging enough, mm-hmm. right? But then Hebrews 13.2 says, and we have to be careful to entertain strangers because mm-hmm. they may be messengers from God. One of the key values of our church is to learn to love people, to be hospitable to people who are strange to us. Mm-hmm. And I think that if, our, if churches could uh, get better at that, it would make a huge difference in our world. Do you think churches are doing a good job at that? Or do
1: you think that's an area of growth that's needed in churches that you know of and work with?
0: I think that there's a very sincere desire among, well, any pastor that I know and any church that I'm aware of to get better at that. I I don't know of anybody who's sitting there saying, oh no, I don't want to do that. I think that we're blessed in terms of our diversity by where our particular church is located. We're located in a very diverse area, but there are a lot of churches in our area that are not diverse. So there's got to be something more going on than just geography. Uh, but I think the heart of people, uh, pastors, leaders, churches, is for that to be happening.
1: Is that something you've had to learn? What Did that come supernaturally for you as a pastor, moving into that community? 31 years ago. Was it 31 years ago? 27. 20, 27 years ago. So moving in that community 27 years ago, was that something you said, oh yeah, this is exactly what I want this to look like? Or is it an art that you've learned through the years?
0: It is, I would say it's an art that I have been taught over mm. the years. Um, man, I grew up in, in uh, Indianapolis suburbia. I grew up and everyone around me, for the most part, was just like I was. And I'd like to say I had some grand plan to lead this this church that's known for its diversity. The reality is, I didn't. I had some uh, theological theologically informed desire for that, but it was more conceptual. And um, I, I was invited to to begin to lead this church by 54. Members, twenty-seven wow. years ago, meeting in the basement of some smelly church on Main Street, um, and it was a crazy sense of calling that that caused me to say yes and come. But I, at that time, um, I would say that eighty percent of of the, the fifty-four people were first-generation immigrants, and here I am, this this at that time, 29-year-old guy from Indiana, white guy from Indiana. And and the truth is I had no clue. And those people taught me. Wow. They taught me how to lead a diverse church. They were patient. They were kind. They were gentle. Uh, There were a few people who got upset at me about some dumb things that I said and some insensitivities on my part. But for the most part, the people were generous and kind to me. And then over the years, as this thing has grown and grown and grown and grown, um, I've just learned to have lots of conversations with people who aren't like me. And we, and, and so I've learned it. Let's put it like that. I, I didn't come in here with some grand plan. It's happened by God's grace and the grace and kindness of this incredibly hospitable congregation that I lead.
1: And what I love about that, and and of course, I don't, we we were just talking, we don't know each other that well, but to lead a congregation for that length of time, I have a feeling you've gone from learning to living, and and it's always a constant state of learning, I know, but these values, and and what I love about this is, is these values aren't something you wrote because they sounded good. These values are things you are learning to live out, and, and are living out, and not everybody agrees with it. Not everybody's going to think it's the best way, because even in the book, you talk about, you know, Jesus having table fellowship with people that people didn't think he should be with was scandalous back then. And people didn't, the religious leaders didn't like. how. Why why was it such a problem for those that may be listening today that are, man, they're a business leader, they're not New Testament scholars, they're just, they're driving to coach a ball game, or they're going out driving to coach their team at work. Why was the way that Jesus led hanging out with being a known as a friend of sinners? Why was that so scandalous back then?
0: Well, the religious context certainly did not celebrate that. I mean, the, the, the laws even in Judaism as to who you could eat with and what you could eat and so on were, were pretty strict. And um, Jesus somehow found a way to, to sit at table with, with people who were, uh, well, you use the word scandalous. I mean, Mm. the religious scholars of that day called Jesus a glutton and a drunkard. It wasn't just who he ate with. He, he also seemed to enjoy feasting. Mm. And it seemed that he had such a, a, a good time with this wide diversity of people that he spent time with that he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, and the Old Testament would would call for a, a glutton and a drunkard to be taken outside the city and stoned. I mean, he, he, it was scandalous in in his meeting and having dinner with uh, tax collectors uh, uh, who were insurrectionists of the day, uh, prostitutes. Yeah. Um. um and now, now again, no one's questioning. Um, his conduct, obviously, he was without sin. Somehow or another, he figured out a way to spend time with all of these people, other than him, and to continue to be who he was. He never compromised anything. But spending time there gave him permission, if you please, to be able to say things to them that they would not have normally been willing to hear. I mean, it wasn't just about hanging out with him. Obviously, the, he he came to speak truth to them, mm. and. The the fact that he spent time with them in these hospitable environments gave him the opportunity to speak truth, to be truth to them.
1: You know, in in one of your one of your levels in this is helping people chase the dreams that they were created for. And I love that level, I believe it was level three. And I was I was teaching Saturday to um a group of people and we were talking about Zacchaeus. And boy, what a What an amazing thing that Jesus spent that time with him that he did. But before he could even do that, Zacchaeus began to chase a dream that Jesus hadn't even laid out for him yet, but yet so inspired him that he could be more than what he was. So what does it look like for a hospitable leader to help people follow their dreams? And your phrase was, and I highlighted this phrase, you don't rule people, you lead them. How does a leader like this help people chase those dreams in an environment that people have been put in in leadership?
0: Well, this is one of my favorite things to talk about, Mike. Um, probably my theme verse in life is John chapter 10, verse 10. It's mm. probably a lot of people's theme verse where Jesus promised life and all of his fullness or abundant life. I love the way that it's said in the message. Jesus promised people more and better life than they ever dreamed of. Mm. Now, what a lot of people don't know about John chapter 10, verse 10, is Jesus made that very famous statement in the context of a leadership talk he was evidently giving. Um, It's not time to go into this. I don't want to bore you or your listeners. But that talk was given during the time of Hanukkah. And Hanukkah was a time when people would review how how they got into the mess that necessitated Hanukkah uh, back under the era of the Maccabeans. And, and they got into the mess they were in because of bad leadership. And Jesus in John chapter 10 is making a contrast between good shepherds and bad shepherds. And he introduces himself as a good shepherd who will lead people to more and better life than they ever dreamed of. And I think that this is a key quality of a hospitable leader. And that is that we are hospitable to people and their dreams. Mm. We we are, we are always in a position where whatever their dreams are, we want even more and better for them than that. A, A lot of leaders, it seems to me, they lead in a way where it's about the leader's dreams, the organization's dreams but there's something incredibly compelling about a leader who gets up every day and they the, the organization exists to help the people's dreams come true. And I, I think that that's moral leadership and I think it's a good way to talk about hospitable leadership. We are hospitable to people and we are hospitable to their dreams. You know, we
1: went back, we were talking earlier about Blackaby and and where all this was sort of born out of for me, you know, spiritual leadership is moving people onto God's agenda. God's agenda for everybody's life may not always be serving alongside of us and working for me or with me or around me. And, you know, when they're not great teammates, you're glad to let them go and set them free for their dreams. But when they're great teammates and they're super at what they do, you want to hold on to them how do you, and and you talked a little bit about great leaders are always issuing invitations to a great adventure. Why does that stand in contrast to other leadership styles that are out there?
0: Well, David Brooks said uh, that life is a moral drama, not a hedonistic one. Mm. And I, I think you know, so if we go back to John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus promised more and better life. than you, One could ask the question, how in the world can you live more better life than you ever dreamed of? The answer to me is by living the life that God dreamed for mm. you. And I think that a moral leader is helping people achieve their dreams in the context of God's dreams for the world. This is the great moral drama. This is the great fight of good against evil. This is, this is, this is, the, this is dreaming in light of transcendent values. Um, and I think that great leaders call people to make sure that whatever their dreams are, are connected to God's dreams for his world. And this is the great adventure. It's never just about, hey, you have a dream to go build a business and make money. It's always asking the why question. It's always asking the transcendent question. It's always asking the big picture, eternal picture uh, question. So I think leaders are calling people to a great adventure. It's, It's about the people's dreams, but it's loving the people enough to make sure their dreams are not just about themselves. It's about God's big adventure, what's going on in the world.
1: And you tie that in really well in the chapter two into talking about as a parent, you know, it, as a parent helping our children capture those dreams that God has put in their heart. How is that? How, how did you do that as a parent? How's
0: has that process been for you? Well, so I, I talk a lot about this concept of area of destiny. I think one of the things a hospitable leader does is he or she is very concerned about helping people find their place in this world. And um, area of destiny is the intersect of passion, mission, and gifts. Well, I think any leader is always making sure that they're helping people live out their dreams in their area of destiny, their God predestined place. This is especially true for parents. Mm. So I would just I would contrast my two sons. I have three children, a a daughter and two sons, but for purpose of this discussion, I'll contrast my two sons. Um, my older son, Caleb, um, has decided to pursue his dreams connected to God's dreams for the world. I hope in Los Angeles, he's a director and, um, writer and actor, and, uh, he's having some success in Hollywood and, um, I've had to be willing to, to help him find his place and to cheerlead him pursuing his dreams, even though his dreams are taking him far away from home. And it's um in some ways it's painful. There's an empty seat at the table. Uh and and it's difficult. On the other but but that's part of what a hospitable leader does is a hospitable leader is for people pursuing yeah. their God-given dreams, whatever that is. You're not just for it, you intentionalize it, you promote it, you sacrifice for it, you celebrate it. Um on the other hand, our youngest son, Christian, uh feels a call to vocational ministry and uh is now, I think, into year three on our staff team here at at the Life Christian Church. And he's doing a great job. And um I, I I also have to find a way for him to pursue his dreams, even while staying involved, essentially in the dream that God's given me. Mm. For either one, for either one of them, the one. Sometimes it's easier, and I think this may be part of what you were getting at in your question. It's taken me a while to get there, Mike. Forgive me, but uh, so so I'm. Sometimes it's easier, actually for the person pursuing their dreams far from home to say goodbye to them and God bless you. There's another leadership skill involved in the one who stays Mm -hmm. and how you make place for them to, to, to follow their dreams in the leadership sphere that, that someone has established over the course of many years. Does that make sense? It
1: makes perfect sense. So my, so funny you know, I'm sorry everybody has to listen into my counseling session now with with, uh, with this topic because my son is on my staff. And so uh, he came on, I guess, a year and a half ago and doing a great job. A lot of it's intu- probably like your son's very intuitive. He's been around it his whole life. I remember hearing Andy, we were talking about Andy Stanley earlier. Andy told me years ago, you know, he said, if I ever get a chance to hire a preacher's kid and any other kid, I'll hire the preacher's kid. Because they know everything bad about it, and they Crazy, choose to do man. it. Yeah, and he said a pastor's kid walks in a room and looks at it. A regular person walks in a room and looks at it. Regular person goes, "Man, the Holy Spirit's there. It's amazing." And the pastor's kid goes, "No, nah, it's just crowded." All right. And so they they have this ability to see through things, but within a leadership organization, man, I don't ever want to hinder or hold back that pursuit he may have or that dream because it. It would hurt me for him not to work here, right? And there's that yep. that that fine line balance. When I was reading your book, that's what's going through my daughter's a senior in college and she's chasing her dreams and all of that right now. And so it it just boy it was making my mind really run. It's to me, and this is maybe selfishly here. It's easier for me to be a hospitable leader with others than it may be even with my own family because I want to put. I want to put guardrails on their dreams to make them safe and
0: what I would do. Do you see what I'm saying on that? Absolutely. First of all, this pastor's kid thing is amazing. You know, my son joined our staff at kind of a low level position as one would expect, just coming out of college. He's advanced so quickly in the organization. It's crazy. And it it has nothing to do with me. It has to do with who he is. And he has, me and his mother's DNA and the DNA of this church in him. He can't hardly help but connect to the people and to our mission on a level that literally no one else could. But then one of of my great questions is how am I hospitable to him and his dreams Mm. in the context of this dream God has given me somehow or another, I have to let him expand and grow and Risk and fail, and um, and have opportunities to succeed. And I'm actually finding that to be the greater leadership challenge, even more than the heartbreak of having another son chasing his dreams elsewhere. And and frankly, it's going really well. But it's something that I'm I'm really working on. Yep. How, how does he grow and develop himself fully while? So I hate this term, but being in my shadow. Absolutely. Well, the reality is I'm trying to do this in a way where he's, he's not in my shadow mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he's leading in his own right. But man, it, it is a challenge. But when we get intentional about it and we, we, we really, you know, I get up every day and say, how can I help my son's dreams come true? Yeah. Even in the context of him working in this place, that's a result of some of the dreams God's given me.
1: Well, and it, it, it tests for you, you know, do I see myself as somebody he's always going to work for, or did God just create me so he could stand on my shoulders and do something even better and greater? And it, and it tests that, it tests that, you know, that humility in our own hearts of what this is really all about. Because I've been at North Star 21 years. This is all Casey knows. It's all my mm-hmm. daughter knows. This is really the only church they, my son was little when we started here. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's an interesting thing and you, 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 hit a term in there. And I love this term because I think it goes back to the diversity issue you're facing in your church or not facing the diversity issue that is in your church, because our society says we can't get along. You know, we're, we're, we're divided on racial lines. We're divided on political lines. We're divided on socioeconomic levels. And you use a term called common grace. That, that you figured out this art, a hospitable leader leads with common grace. Talk, talk to me a little bit about what that means.
0: Well, common grace, I, I think the f- person who first started talking about this was Kuyper all the way back uh, in, the, in the early part of the last century. And he talked about special grace, which is given to people who believe in Jesus. And then he talked about common grace, which is given to all humanity as a result of being created in the image of God. And that is to say that we all have, uh, and this is a low-level way of discussing this, but we all have a lot in common. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it doesn't matter whether someone is Muslim, Jewish, or Christian. A sunset is beautiful. And one, it, this, this is just common grace. Yep. The, and there's a lot that, the, that humanity has in common and um, communication, and I talk uh, one of the welcomes in the book is about communication you know, hospitable communication. How do you create a hospitable communicative environment a place where where people want you to speak truth to them and I think key to that is is is, is finding uh, especially people with people who don 't have special grace, finding common grace. communication has to do with fi- it begins with finding things in common. And, um, so I, I really, I, I think a lot of people who may not really think through the common grace thing actually do this instinctively when they're great communicators, I would assume this of you, Mike, I bet that, uh, when you talk about athletics in the pulpits or not, if, 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 if they're illustration, if you find something in common and you work out yep. from them, uh, Rick Warren in um, Purpose Driven Church actually does a great job of talking about how you, you, you begin to reach people by starting with things in common. Yep. So, but Common Grace, you know, it's it, one of the things that I love about the community I live in. West Orange, New Jersey is a bedroom community of New York City. And 30% of this community is Jewish. Um, there is a very small minority of evangelical Christians. In, in our bedroom community of 50,000 people, there are only three other, for lack of a better term, Bible-believing Christian churches. Wow. wow. So I've had, one of the reasons that I got so involved in the community many years ago was so that I could find things in common with people who aren't like me and so that they would give me an opportunity to speak what I believe to be true to them. And um, it's amazing how much you can find in common with people who are totally other than you just because they're human beings made in God's image. That's so true. It is so true. But it takes work,
1: and it takes intentionality. I mean, it takes stopping. I heard one, one buddy of mine says it this way. I can't hate somebody when I know their story. I just can't because you know, their background, you know, what they came through, you know, what they've put up with, you know, what they've overcome. Golly, you look at them and you're like, I want to hate you. I can't hate you. I, I got there, There's something about you that's level lovable. And I love you. You make a statement and you say, people are our pleasure, not our problem. And that is such a great statement. Uh, have you always been drawn to people? Is that something that even going back to that call that God had on your life as a teenager, you'd say, I've always enjoyed people. Has that been true for you?
0: No. Wow. It may surprise you to hear me say that. Uh, I am, I don't know if you're familiar with the disc profile. Very, very familiar. Most most people are. I am a high DC. Wow. Meaning a, a driver perfectionist. Um, I I didn't get blessed with a whole lot of I, which is the more sanguine, inspirational, the guy who he creates a party everywhere he goes naturally. No, the the fact is, Mike, I have had to learn and am learning um, to um, enjoy people. Now, let, let me let me say this. I would say I have learned that. Now, there are a lot of things I am learning about leadership and about people, but uh, it didn't take me long to figure out if I was going to do anything great. I had to get good at leading people, and I had to lead people in a way where they wanted to follow me. And I have, as a consequence, found so much more personal fulfillment doing things in company with others and have, have seen so many things accomplished beyond what I could have done by myself that I've had to, you know, I've poured my life into figuring out how to see people's opportunities and not problems. That's great. You
1: know, I'm a trainer in DISC. So the DC, for any listener that's not familiar with DISC, is the greatest trait of a military general. If that, if go. that, If it
0: shows... There's my personality.
1: There you go. Which, man, it's always projects over people. Both both D and C are about getting the job done. I'll worry about the people second. And this whole concept of being a hospitable leader is reverse that. It's really more natural. I'm an IS, so it's definitely more natural for somebody who loves people and, and goes about it. And so is this something that you have to consciously think every day now? Or do you feel like you've been in this long enough? You've really trained yourself this way.
0: Well, I think, I think I've really trained myself this way and I still have to work on it when my default position is to go to the driver perfection. Yeah. I don't think that's the space that I live in most of the time, but if I get tired or under a lot of pressure yeah. um, and, or if things aren't going the way I think they should be going, I, I have to be careful not to fall back into that. And you you know this—the the the, the John ten ten idea of a good shepherd who is is getting up every day to help people experience life and all of its fullness and more and better life than they've dreamed of. That good shepherd um, guy—it's hard for a a high D high C to be that guy. That's just the reality of it. You're you're exactly right. It's projects over people. But this—that's not. Hospitable leadership—that's not what good shepherds do. Good shepherds lay down their lives for the sheep, mm. and and so this is something that over you know now thirty-five years of leadership and twenty-seven years in the same place, where most of the people still love me, I have had to learn this. Yeah, but it has been, it, it 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 you know hoped anyone out there, it did not come natural for me.
1: That's really interesting because, of course, we're just getting to know each other. But even having a heart to write a book like this, from the concept and the 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 way that God hardwired you and put you together, and de- listen, there's no greater trait in the world than a DC leader. I mean, there's there really isn't because you've got all those skill sets of drivenness and perfection and and all those kind of things. But in the industry that you have chosen to be in and in the, in the calling that you have, man, it is learning the art of balancing people because your D.C. is still there. It doesn't go away. But learning that art of I'm not going to make people positionally follow me, which a D.C. leader right. would typically do. Right. And you talk a lot about trust in leadership and that people, you know, a hospital hospitable leader. Earns trust with people. I bet the bank of trust that you've, you know, earned over 27 years is pretty big there, being in the same place for that long.
0: You know, um, I talk about hospitable leadership. The book is dedicated, though, to my congregation because the reality is, for whatever reason, and I really believe it's just God's. Providence and grace. These people have been incredibly hospitable to me. Mm. And, um, somehow or another over 27 years, you're, you're exactly right. When you say there's a tremendous reservoir of trust, the people love me. They trust me. Uh, we've seen a lot of great things happen together and, um, and we're at home with each other Mm -hmm. and, and that's, that's really a key to trust. You know, there's this great verse in, verse in uh, Ephesians that says that I, where Paul said, I pray that Christ will be more and more at home in your hearts, living with you as you trust in him. And the fact is that the more we're at home with each other, which speaks to the whole idea of hospitality and warm hearts and our leadership domain as a feast, the more we're at home with each other, the more we trust each other. Um, I uh, I really like M.R. Covey's book called uh, The Speed of Trust, Stephen Covey's son. I believe it's Stephen M.R. Covey, I believe is actually the name of Stephen Covey's son. And he wrote this book called The Speed of Trust. And he said that an organization can only grow as fast as the the, the, the level of trust grows. That's right. And um I was reading that book and reading about what happens in organizations where there's, there's high trust and there's this amazing environment where people believe in each other and work together and accomplish great things. And I, I was reading the book and I thought, man, I want to work someplace like that. Yep. And I realized, you know what, as a leader, I have the ability to create a place like that. I mm. can do that. I, I, can, I can create an environment that feels like home to people where people's hearts are warm, where my leadership domain feels like a feast and um, I have just decided years ago that I was going to get better and better at this. You've got
1: this book coming out, and this is coming out during the pre-launch phase. How do people get the book? What's going to be the best way for them to find out more about placing an order
0: to get this, Terry? Well, people text the code TERRY to 345- Dash three four five. They can receive a free preview of the hospitable leader. Receive uh, the introduction and the fourth chapter, which talks about what it looks like to really love strangers. So it's Terry T E R R Y, and and they can text three four five dash three four five or they can learn more about the book and order it and so on at hospitableleader.com. Oh, I love that. Hospitableleader.com. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to let people know how to do that, Mike. I appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. We will have those links in our show notes as well. What What's your biggest passion? So the book hits the market. What is your biggest passion that God does when people read this book, when a leader reads this book?
0: You know, I hope that... Leaders all over the country from a variety of disciplines read this book and are inspired to get better at leading people in a way that helps people achieve their dreams. But also I'm interested in that more radical part of hospitable leadership that learns to be hospitable to people who aren't like us. And I'd love to move the needle if just a little bit on um, us learning how to sit at the table with each other instead of yelling at each other in some uh, inhospitable environment.
1: I hope you enjoyed that time with Terry. It's great stuff, isn't it? You know, you never think of leadership from that vantage point, the hospitable leader, but man, Jesus led with hospitality. You know, our passion on this, on this podcast has been really stretching us in the area of, spiritual leadership. And I know for me, this stretched me in some areas because it just made me think about things differently. And it made me think about things that maybe before I'd really never thought about. You know, his quote, a hospitable leader is an unselfish leader. We lead people to expand and grow within our sphere of leadership and from our sphere of leadership. That hospitable leader exist within all of us. And I think Terry hit on that a lot today, but boy, it's an area that we all have to grow in. And I certainly at times can be more selfish than hospitable. And that's an area that I want to, I really want to grow in. And I think if I thought of a word from Terry and about Terry, it would be, he was a hospitable leader for me. It was funny. I sent him a note when we got off the air and I said, man, whether you know this or not, you just exemplified everything we even talked about in that in that episode. And man, just graciousness, kindness, helping me so I could help you. What a what a picture. And what if we all live that way? What if we all live from the vantage point, if I am able to do something that serves someone else, I'm a winner. And boy, Terry, you did that for me and you did that for all of us. Well, I hope you enjoy that time and I hope you'll go to the show notes and order The Hospitable Leader and you will get you a copy for you and your team and your staff. I know we're going to be reading it as a staff because it, it was a great book. It was a great book for me to be pushed. Well, in our next episode, we get to sit down in a very different leadership context, but same passionate heart with a young leader from the Chicago area named Aaron Nyquist. Aaron is just an incredibly sharp young man. We connected through Annie Downs, and, man, Aaron, that time uh, Aaron and I sat down, did not disappoint, and I know it won't disappoint you. So I hope you'll tune in for our next episode that will be releasing on October the 8th. I hope you're enjoying these. Boy, selfishly, I sure do, because I enjoy sitting down with these great leaders. If they have been of help to you, share them with somebody. Post a quote that you learned from Terry. Post a quote from another episode that you've enjoyed and tag the podcast and encourage others because our goal is that as many as people as possible begin to be the leaders that God created them to be in the places that God has put them. Well, until we meet again, I hope you go out and lead. And I hope you go out and live the journey that God created you for in the place that God has put you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.